This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. The future is history. They're coming. Is that the tagline? That's the 12 Monkeys tagline, y'all. <laughs> we watched the movie 12 Monkeys, mm-hmm. starring Bruce Willis, directed by Terry Gilliam, who was once in Monty Python yes. and eventually became famous directing the movie Brazil. Shall we listen to the trailer? <clears throat> Let's do it. No license, no prints, no warrants. What year is this? What year do you think it is? 1996. That's the future, James. Do you think you're living in the future? I'm simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus. We're not in the present now. This is a place for crazy people. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill. For all I know, you're <coughs> crazy as a loon. You sent me to the wrong year. You're certain of that. Science ain't an exact science. You had a bullet from World War One in your leg, James. How did it get there? the future to be unknown. I just want to do my part to get us back on top in charge of the planet. From the writer of the Blade Runner screenplay. Ah, okay. And Brad Pitt was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for this, but lost to Kevin Spacey in The Usual Suspects. Oh, interesting. I know he won a a Golden Globe, though, for his performance. Uh, So there you go. But okay, so the, the... Trailer's a little bit convoluted, but essentially it's like, in a future world devastated by disease, a convict is sent back in time to gather information about the man-made virus that wiped out most of the human population on the planet. Mm-hmm. It takes place in World War One time, 1914 to 18, 1990, 1996, and 2035. So we're right, because they keep around. fucking up sending him back in time, and they keep right. being like, oh, we fucked up, sent him to World War One instead of like the 90s. Right, and, well, the first know. time was so weird, like, wasn't he supposed to go to 96, but they sent him to 90? Yeah, like, yeah, so he shows up in 19. 1990 and there's all this stuff that he's like knows that he's supposed to do to be able to communicate with the people in the future yeah. like there's like an answering machine service that he's supposed to call right, but right. it hasn't been set up yet in 1990 totally. so he just gets thrown into the mental you institution. You can tell by the fashions you're like this is 90. <laughs> this is 90. Yeah, this yeah. is not 96. <laughs> an original tagline suggested was the future is in the hands of a man who has none. The reason why that was confusing is because it made it sound like he had no hands instead of no future. Oh wait the future what? future <laughs> is in the hands of a man who has none. Oh, he has no hands. <laughs> right, so they, they moved on, and they so that's why they changed it to the future's history. They're coming. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, there you go. You're like, really quickly, I wanted to talk about the Cassandra complex because that's exactly what this all is. It was referenced on this show before by my brother, who came on a number of episodes ago. Yeah, now. a long time ago. And it's basically a curse or a dilemma or however you want to put it, where in Greek mythology, Cassandra was incredibly beautiful, and Apollo was extremely attracted to her mm-hmm. and he gave her the gift of prophecy but when she refused Apollo's romantic advances he placed a curse on her ensuring that nobody would ever believe her warnings oh man he's a mythological nice guy just fucking hashtag me too right? till, since the beginning of time he gets turned down and he fucking tur- turns evil all right, of a sudden right. well that's the thing the point of the Cassandra complex is more about being left with the knowledge of future events but you can't change them or convince anybody that they're gonna happen right and so they talk about this a bunch in the movie because Bruce Willis knows the future but he still can't change it Mm -hmm. and so everybody thinks that he's crazy and he's get thrown into a mental institution but I also like reading over the Cassandra thing this time I was like 
maybe the lesson is don't turn down a god when he buys you flowers because you look pretty, you bitch. Like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, I totally. can't believe this story happened. <laughs> I know. Right. I, I, reading over right. it, I was like, whoa, the lesson do? today is a little different oh, than I thought yeah. it was. Yeah. But I mean, we've definitely touched on the, the concept many times of just like, what would you do if you had this kind of knowledge and right. would that kind of drive you crazy? Like, you know, some people might say, I would love to know when and where I'm going to die so that way I just right. have the foresight or whatever. But it's like, no, then everything in your life is going to be colored by that that knowledge a lot of people who can kind of see a, a lot of the terrible things that are coming in the future mm-hmm. feel a nihilistic viewpoint because right. eventually they realize like well i can't change any of this because the world's just going to do what it's going to do and it's going to be bad and so why right. why try anything but then the most minor changes can have these vast effects right so that, it, that whole nihilistic idea you're like Fuck yeah you. grow up come on put some good energy out into the world yeah. why don't you Now, okay, so this whole 12 monkeys thing, right? Like, Mm. the army of the 12 monkeys is inspired by a passage in L. Frank Baum's novel, The Magic of Oz, in which the Gnome King and Kiki Aru convince 12 monkeys that they'll have an endless supply of food if they become human soldiers for them. Okay. But I also read that it was heavily inspired by the film La Jetée from 1962, and this is described as a, quote, French left bank sci-fi featurette. It's only 28 minutes long, translates to the jetty, which refers to an outdoor pier at an airport, and it's constructed in almost entirely from black and white still photos, and it tells the story of a post-nuclear war time travel experiment, hmm. and it won the Prix Jean Vigo or whatever for short film. And like somewhere I read that Terry Gilliam had not seen La Jetée, but if you kind of look throughout, like there's all of these Easter eggs or whatever the fuck you want, it, these little like winks and nods, because towards the end of the movie, there's a scene from Vertigo that's playing in, I think in the mental institution, uh-huh. and that actually heavily influenced La Jetée. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, because Vertigo was 1958, La Jetée is 1962. At some point, there's also a scene from like the Andromeda strain when mm-hmm. they're all the, the winks and nods to the animal testing and stuff. So I it just made saw me that for like, the first time. That movie's oh, great. Oh, really? Because yeah. I was thinking, I was like, I've never seen Vertigo. We I've never seen Andromeda, the Andromeda strain. strain. We should yeah. do both of them. Now, in terms of casting, Gilliam's first choice for the lead role was Jeff Bridges, who he worked with on The Fisher King. Okay. And of course, the studio wanted a bigger star, so they cast Bruce Willis. And ironically, Bruce had also originally auditioned for the Fisher King but lost out to Jeff Bridges so what, what a kind of and Lincoln's secretary was named Kennedy Kennedy's <laughs> secretary was named Lincoln it's just a whole circle guys <laughs> So Bruce ended up taking a lower salary, as did a lot of the actors involved, because they just were really excited about working with Terry Gilliam. He actually did it for free until the movie was released. But And then he you. got some money on the back end? Yeah, yeah. I mean, which I actually don't know how much money this made, but I feel like, it, I mean, it's definitely has a cult following, if, that for, if not more. Yeah. Yeah, so this is the first of the three movies in which Bruce travels back in time to meet a younger version of himself, one of which we've done, Looper from Looper, 2012. Looper, that's right. But then there's another one from 2000 called The Kid. Did you you ever see that? Oh my god, I did. <laughs> Holy sh- Disney's the kid. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god, it, I totally forgot about this movie cuz he goes back and like hangs out with himself as a kid and like winds up raising himself see, or something. I, that does not sound like a Bruce Willis movie to me, I have which not is what's seen so this. crazy. I I think of like the title as literally being Disney's the kid. Right. It's not just the kid. So for Brad Pitt's part, Jeffrey Goins, that Johnny Depp was originally considered for that. Oh, yeah, he would have been great in that time. Totally. I mean, he's such a weird Right. And, but you know bless Brad Pitt's heart it's they're like he's he's wacky and the way you know that is because of his lazy eye because otherwise right. he's just and his like <laughs> well, weird like tics the, the tics, and yeah that's yeah. what crazy people do he was acting 
more than anybody has ever acted before. <laughs> he acted this. a lot. Like he also has played a couple of like crazy characters, like Tyler Durden in. Um, oh yeah, whatever. What <laughs> the fuck is a mo- you know the movie with Ed Norton? Oh yeah, Fight Club. Fight Club. That's yeah, yeah. The one. So I was I just like knew what you're talking about. So like yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, at this time he was an up and coming actor, but by the time it was released, Interview with the Vampire, Legends of the Fall, and Seven had all been released. Oh okay. So he again took a pay cut to work with Terry Gilliam, but by the end it was like. Brad Pitt the hit. Up. So and that's when he he received his his golden globe. Mm. Final tidbit before we get started: When Cole is drawing blood from himself during one of the scenes, there's a shadow of a hamster wheel that can be seen on the wall. And this could have been shot in five minutes, but it took an entire day because Terry Gilliam was insistent on watching the hamster run around in the wheel, but he wouldn't move. So he's just like, "We'll wait." We will wait. We need <laughs> oh this God. metaphor of a hamster in a wheel. So all day fucking long. Getting it right. So then for the rest of the production, Gilliam's perfectionism was nicknamed the hamster factor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine though? Like just being like a grip on set. Right. Like, yeah. We, we got to wait for this genius. fucking hamster for this heavy handed yeah. metaphor. Bring another hamster. <laughs> one that's more apt for exercise. Well, like if it's just the shadow of it, yeah. then can't you fake it? I don't right? know. I don't There's know. There's got to be a way. They got it. But nope, they got it. <laughs> that's a, the hamster factor. He was a perfectionist. <laughs> Science. There's this phenomenon of like finding old photographs that supposedly show people like wearing clothes that hadn't been invented yet or talking on cell phones before they were invented. All of these have been debunked, but there's like another related phenomenon of people showing up and claiming to be from the future. Because like Bruce Willis's whole character is like, I'm from this time. Right. He's like, all right, bozo. Which is hilarious to me because it's like he should know not to say those things because he should know that they would think that he's crazy. But I find this movie particularly interesting because they're taking somebody who already doesn't really have their mental faculties strongly about them Mm -hmm. and then putting them in a circumstance where they really need their mental faculties so like him not really knowing how to interact with people in the past wound up landing him in the mental institution right because at the very least he's at least socially awkward or on the spectrum or something right Right. he's not just like a guy you would think that like a time traveler who was sent back in time is like the brilliant perfect person to be sent back but it's like what if he was an idiot right like what if all they had was Was this this guy guy. and they took him from some kind of prison Prison, yeah yeah, like underground right well because all humans are living underground but it's unclear like why he landed in this prison other than the fact that he was like young when he came in here right 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 you know but anyway there have been a couple of these stories throughout history unlike in the movie they're not real (laughs) but even so there's a lot of fun to be had because there's this guy john titor who popped up in 1998 claiming to be from a parallel timeline where time travel was invented in 2034 by general electric oh boy okay and in 2001 he explained that his mission was to collect a vintage computer from 1975 because they needed to debug computers back in 2036 no, they don't. They I don't just, need the 70s computers. I know. It doesn't make any sense, <laughs> but I also think it's a hilariously great sci-fi idea right. of, like, this old technology that existed in the time, but, like, it, it, no, you can't find it anymore. But so we go back in time right. to find it. Yeah, I mean, he what justified weird... it in the same way that so many time travel movies do. Like, mm-hmm. why do we need to do this? Right. You know. Exactly. Well, his predictions of the future, which included a second American Civil War in 2013. Maybe he was off by just a few years. Just a few years. But... He a lot of other things that he suggested did not come true, but he had capitalized on early internet forums to push the whole hoax. Sure. Another story, which is of dubious origin, mm-hmm. 
part of this might have actually started as satire. It's like unclear how real this is, but mm-hmm. I love this story so much because it's about a guy who was making incredible Wall Street bets and nailing it. Like he turned like $800 into millions of dollars right. very quickly. So the SEC was like, what's the deal with this guy? He's making <laughs> predictions that are way too good. Right. And he claimed to be from the future. <laughs> Uh-huh. Which is how he knew what was going to happen next. He was making all these bets that you could never make. And then it turned out that he was had insider information and was illegally using sure, that sure. for the Wall Street bets. And I just yeah. love the idea of like somebody literally doing something old-fashioned illegal that's possible and being like, I'm from the future. Right. Yeah, like, how, how do I cover my tracks? It's actually <laughs> quite remarkable. I'm from the future. You won't believe it, but it's true. I mean, it's funny that you're bringing up these stories of these bogus future travelers when really it's like people still go to psychics like there are psychics everywhere it's crazy it bothers me to no end i've had an insane amount of highly intelligent people be like oh i really want you to see my medium like they have their own medium and i'm like no No. i called you highly intelligent (laughs) yeah and we've talked about that before where it's like what is that just an opportunity to kind of go and get a perspective like have somebody kind of shake you up a little bit and then it sounds like when these people are presenting it to you it's like you need this yeah because like they'll tell you really set you straight (laughs) ugh So many of the scenes in the movie were filmed at Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. It's also known as ESP. But if you oh. remember, like a lot of the inside of the <laughs> asylum. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Shorten that shit. Well, because from the movie, there's a lot of the inside that's kind of creepy in the asylum. And when you look at this fucking pictures of this this prison it's like it's nuts well i remember when we were watching the movie i was like where is this and who would build any place like this somebody did build it and let's talk about that now it was built in 1829 in the middle of philly and it looks like a creepy ominous castle from the outside (laughs) and it was allegedly done in an effort to begin treating prisoners more humanely before that prisons had generally been commercial ventures which is so unknown today weird that we went back to that but (laughs) sure like before in like the super corrupt times so we actually chose to go away from that before coming back to it i didn't know that i mean i guess of course it had to have started because you think about even just like some of the the risky dealings on wall street Mm. and stuff that we went away from and now they're trying to undo anyway so beforehand (laughs) like the prisons were totally overcrowded with both with adults children men and women they were basically oh yeah they basically because i think they're just like get the riffraff off the street mm-hmm, and they would mm-hmm. throw these people into essentially holding pins and left to their own devices. Mm. So as you can imagine, not only is there starvation, cold disease, but there's abuse by, you got men and women in the same, there's right. rapes and beatings and the guards are participating too. So often prisoners were killed before they were even sentenced in these oh situations. God. So in 1787, members of the Philadelphia Society for Alleviating the Miseries of Public Prisons, oh. <laughs> they met at Benjamin Franklin's house to discuss an alternative. While he was like alive and doing it? This oh yeah, this is 1787. Wow. So he was still alive and kicking at that time. That's awesome. Now in his remarks that night, there was a prominent doctor in the city named Benjamin Rush who called for, quote, a house of repentance. This was where there was order and prisoners might have a chance to be penitent for mm-hmm. their crimes. Mm-hmm. He was adamant though when he said, quote, let the name of this house convey an idea of its benevolent and salutary design, but let it by no means be called a prison or by any other name that is associated with what is infamous in the opinion of mankind. So instead, this new facility would be called a penitentiary. Oh, oh, shit. 
the penitentiary, instead of just like holding people and having it be like rabble rousery or whatever, it would allow criminals to meditate on their crimes with no corporal punishment, no beatings and whatever. Okay. So the idea was to erect a large house, divide it into a number of apartments, and then reserve one large room for public worship. So this is the way that they wrote it in their old-timey language. Mm -hmm. Then let cells be provided for the solitary confinement of such persons as are of a refractory temper, which means if they're stubborn or Mm -hmm. whatever. Let a garden adjoin this house in which the culprits may occasionally work and walk. This will have a beneficial effect not only upon health, but morals, for it will lead them to a familiarity with those pure and natural objects which are calculated to renew the connection of fallen men by his creator. So, so were they like putting, what are these objects that they're putting in there to like? I think the objects are garden. Right. Places for people to worship. Right. That's just how they talk. A bench in a <laughs> yeah, exactly. park. Yeah. Instead of yeah. like putting them in there and just having them be, because uh, they also Caged. like, the old prisons had like booze and shit. So it was just, Man. you know, it was just chaos and disorder. So Holy this system shit. of like not corporal punishment, but having people meditate was later referred to as the Pennsylvania system. The Pennsylvania, <laughs> penitentiary, <laughs> yeah. like a lot of pens. Um, just in the state of Pennsylvania too. Mm-hmm. But now 30 years later, after this initial meeting at Ben Franklin's house, that's when ground was broken for Eastern State Penitentiary in a cherry orchard outside the city. And then the city of Philadelphia would eventually grow around the fucking penitentiary. So this was like the the centerpiece. Right. That the the rest of the city kind of grew out from. Instead of a city square like center with with the city hall and stuff. Exactly. And they didn't like, they specifically wanted it like in a convenient part of the city. So they were like, oh, this cherry orchard. Then, you know, of course the city grew from there. Now at the time, Eastern State was one of the most expensive building projects. It cost $780,000, which in 2013 dollars at least is $16,295,000. So it was a lot. And this was believed to be second only to the U.S. Capitol in expense. This was at a time when people were still using chamber pots. President Andrew Jackson was still using coal-burning stoves. But cells in ESP had central heating, a flush toilet, running water, a private exercise yard, and skylights so that the divine wisdom of God might shine down upon those inside. Wow. So it sounds dope, right? No possible way for this to go down. (laughs) It sounds like a beautiful system and there's no way for it to go wrong. That's right. So here's where it gets a little tricky. Despite all of its perks, it actually drove Manning crazy because part of what made Eastern State unique is that prisoners were not allowed to interact with each other at all in any way. Hmm. They ate alone, they exercised alone, and they were only allowed one book to read alone. Guess which book it was? The Bible. The Bible. With the prayer areas, though, are they not communal? They're communal, but people had to remain in complete silence at all times. So it's like a monastery that you're being forced to do. Exactly, to meditate on your crimes. So on the rare occasion when they were taken out of their cells, hoods were placed over their heads. Even when they exercised all together in the same room, they wore these masks with eyes cut out in complete silence. Even guards were made to wear these like felt shoe covers so that it was as quiet as possible. This seems obviously mind-breaking. Right. It does. But what's crazy is like there were definitely mixed reviews because in 1831, French aristocrat and historian Alexis de Tocqueville and prison reformer Gustave de Beaumont, they visited the prison and wrote back to the French government that, quote, thrown into solitude, the prisoner reflects, placed alone in view of his crime, he learns to hate it. And if his soul be not yet surfeited with crime and thus have lost all taste for anything better, it is in solitude where remorse will come to assail him. Can there be a combination more powerful for reformation than that of a prison which may him industrious by the burden of idleness 
that's fascinating, but like there's a balance to strike. Right. Like I do think that there's truth there in like solitude allows for reflection in a way, but like complete solitude is gonna then maybe go through that period of time and then enter a point of insanity before you would actually be released. Right. And that's why I feel like this whole experiment is sort of in this weird next step after, okay, so obviously crazy prisons where everybody's just, you know, nuts doesn't work. Let's go the complete opposite and have people like think on their crimes. But I think certainly this is before there was much study done as to like Mm. how much of a psychological trauma that causes for, because we're social creatures, right? Yeah. And I guess we're always iterating on the best way to handle that element of society. Right. Because you also are, you know, of course we're not even talking about people that were wrong wrongfully accused or whatever. Right, right. But like, assumedly, these are criminals, right? So it's like, yeah, it's not supposed to be like a weekend in Vegas necessarily, but clearly there's a balancing act. Now, this, the the whole Pennsylvania system inspired like 300 other prisons around the world, some of which were in use until after World War II. So jump to uh, 10 years later. So in 1842, then Charles Dickens visited Eastern State and he had a completely different opinion. He said, quote, in its intention, I am well convinced that it is kind, humane and meant for reformation. But I am persuaded that those who designed the system of prison discipline do not know what it is that they are doing. Mm. I hold the slow and daily tampering with the mysteries of the brain to be immeasurably worse than any torture of the body. And because its ghastly signs and tokens are not so palpable to the eye and it extorts few cries that human ears can hear, Therefore, I the more denounce it as a secret punishment in which slumbering humanity is not roused up to stay. <laughs> Basically, it's cruel and unusual. Yeah. Right? Well, I also, that's fascinating because I'm also going to talk about like good intended ideas mm-hmm. that wind up doing more harm than good. Right, right. And, and that's where we always need to reassess the choices that we make. Yeah. Like every period of time we need to go, how are we doing in terms of our understanding of mental health and our understanding of the human brain and how to manipulate it to be better than it is. Right. But then, you know, at a time where it's like people aren't even really thinking about psychology, let alone, right. you know, the the inside pain and trauma that's caused. It's so much like, well, they're not getting beaten with with night with walking sticks or right. what is it called? Fucking night sticks. Night sticks. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Like, I said night stick <clears throat> and then I was like, no. And we've talked before about like the time at which public executions stopped in the early 1900s. And it's like, we're constantly changing these things and going like, how do we do this a little bit more humanely, a little bit better? Mm -hmm. And every time we look back on the way we did it before, we go, that wasn't really humane at all. Right, that was evil. Yeah. Well, eventually due to overcrowding and of course disapproval of the system, ESP evolved into a more standard prison known then as the New York system in which inmates shared cells and were permitted to communicate. The Pennsylvania system was eventually abandoned in 1913, but then solid confinement intended for punishment and not penitence would be incorporated again as the prison grew. That's like the hole, the shoe. Now, in this case, it was in the form of windowless subterranean cells called Klondike. But so they were still doing it. But now they were like, okay, let's now we know the toll that it takes on Mm -hmm. people. This is to punish you. Right. It's not to get you to reflect. Let's use it in a different way. Right. We're aware of the nonsense. Mm. Now, by the 20s, two or three men were living in each cell. Like the original design called for 256 cells. But by the time the final cell block was built, there were 980. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of growth and expansion. It fucking remained in use for 142 years from 1829 to 1971. 
Wow. Yeah. So was it like they were building more onto it all the time? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it sounds like, again, if it was, if they started as sort of like a series of apartments with mm-hmm. a, a room for, for growth, it sounds like it It was like in, in the early 20th century. And it's still like century. in the heart of Philadelphia? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's, and it's beautiful. Now it's, now it's open to tourists and stuff because uh-huh. it was abandoned for a while, but now it's like a museum. But now famous folks like Al Capone stayed there. Oh. He was treated more humanely. He was allowed furniture, oil paint. Paintings and a radio in his well, cell. He must have been at the very end of it if it stopped. Or no, you said it ran until the 70s, yeah. right? Oh, God. So he was there. <laughs> now, this was this was fun. This was a fun little note. Uh, uh-huh. A notable inmate was Pep the Cat Murdering Dog. Now, <laughs> Whoa, wait. Yeah. Is he an actual dog? Yeah, according to folklore, <laughs> Pennsylvania Governor Gifford Pinchot used his executive powers to sentence a black lab to life without parole in 1924 because what? apparently Pep killed his wife's cat. But Pinchot said it was actually just that he was there to be the, the prisoner's mascot. Oh, uh, okay. Now, either way, Pep, dog. Pep was treated as an official prisoner and inmate C2559 even has a mugshot. Really? Yeah. Did he ever make it into the, the hole? Uh, probably not. <laughs> yeah, I doubt it. He um now there were some crazy escape attempts from ESP that were kind of fascinating, very Shawshank E oh, yeah? in their in their design. Now inmate Clarence Kleindinst, who was a plaster worker at Eastern State, he was serving time for burglary, larceny, and forgery. You gotta be very aware if they pla- no plaster, yeah, worry exactly. about it. <laughs> he spent a year designing and digging a tunnel out of his cell with the help of his cellmate, and they dug fifteen feet down, ninety-seven feet under the courtyard, and fifteen feet up to Fairmount Avenue and 22nd Street. And they supported the tunnel with wood bracing and equipped it with electric lights, just like fucking Andy did in Shawshank. Wow. Now, before breakfast on the morning of April 3rd, 1945, Kleindinst, Russell, his cellmate, and 10 other men escaped through the tunnel. Oh, shit. Most of them were recaptured and or shot that same day. (laughs) And even Kleindinst only had two years left, but was captured three hours after the escape and it had six years added to his sentence, which sucked. One of the guys that escaped, James Grace, voluntarily surrendered himself a week later because he was like, I haven't been able to feed myself since I escaped. Oh, Is my cell still vacant? (laughs) My old apartment. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And then just like you said after it was closed down in 71 it was just abandoned and kind of creepy for a long time and then they eventually reopened it up in 1994 for you know audio tours that feature interviews with former inmates and guards and is narrated by Steve Buscemi oh interesting if anybody finds themselves in Philly soon they can go check it out and then it was right after that that they shot the movie there well yeah because yes yeah it must have been like shortly after that right that's fucking crazy they were like well it's open there's like all these (laughs) special tours that including like prison uprisings Mm -hmm. and like haunted Halloween tours and stuff. So if I ever end up over there, I'm going to fucking check it out. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So the tunnel came out to the middle of like a street in Mm -hmm. Philadelphia. Yeah, (laughs) man. They they just all like popped out like, whoa, let's run. Because I mean, to me, that is kind of the most fascinating. I mean, that was one of the things I did want to look into because even in this, in the movie, there's like prison escape attempts and whatnot. So I was interested in kind of the underground mapping and whatnot. But like Mm -hmm. the fact that they even got out yeah. Not even the fact that, you know, whatever, they got captured. That's, that is what it is. Because right, you right. just have a bunch of dudes jumping out of a hole in the middle of Philly. But like, dude. Well, it must have taken so long to tunnel that tunnel. One and year. Like, and getting all of the material out in yeah. a way that's safe. Like all the things that they address in Shawshank. But it's like, how could somebody actually pull that shit off? Right. Well, and in Shawshank, it was 20 years. This motherfucker right. did this in a year. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> 
So with all the eco-terrorism that's in the movie, I wound up coming across a few instances of animal rights campaigns that wound up backfiring, Mm -hmm. or at least being really bad for the animals. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the Animal Liberation Front, which was an eco-terrorism group who freed 10,000 minks from a fur farm in Sultan, Washington in 2003. Mm -hmm. They thought that they were being awesome, freeing all the animals, but they didn't realize that they had just dumped thousands of weasels that were probably in their, their hundredth generation of being domesticated into the middle of, like, an urban sprawl. Right. Like, And then, like, I guess the Animal Liberation Front just, like, went home and was like, we nailed it. Did it. Dunzo. Hundreds of these minks were run over by cars within the first few hours of their release. Oh, boy. Apparently, every meal that they'd ever had was delivered via a motorized cart, so the sound of the approaching car engines indicated food. Oh, man. They did not think that through. No. The ones that didn't die then descended on the town of Sultan and murdered pets and livestock. One guy apparently had to fight them off with a shotgun after they attacked him and his dog and killed some other animals that he had on his property. Something else about minks is that they'll eat anything if they have to, including each other. Okay. Unless they're from the same family. So back on the fur farm, the families were all kept together. But because they had no markings after being rounded up after the release, the fur farmers put them all together in a big cage where a lot of them killed and ate each other. Oh, my God. And so the Animal Liberation Front did not nail this. No, they did not. In an understatement. It's just like... Well, to combat what I consider fur farming, like, one of the most evil things that we do. Right. Because it's like, it is not even about food. It's not about any, it's about Mm -hmm. some bullshit. There's too many synthetics. So, like, I both understand the rage that these, these animal activists feel, but you can't, you, it seems like it's at that point so much more about ego. Like, if you know mm-hmm. nothing about actual minks' lifestyles right, right. or whatever, like what they're, especially <laughs> if they've been domesticated, like, would you free a bunch of fucking animals from the zoo and expect everything to, like, go fine? Especially if you just drop them in the middle of, like, the town. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, you know, like, take that's. Take to a sanctuary or something. Like, well, yeah. that's the thing where we were talking about, like, good intended things mm-hmm. that you'd be like, okay, yeah, your purpose here isn't bad, but, like, if you don't know enough about what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing right. it. Right. Absolutely. So a whole other thing is the dolphin safe tuna cans. Mm-hmm. So not long ago, tuna fishermen would use giant drift nets, which were nearly invisible lengths of netting that ran for miles and trapped anything that it, ha- it happened to scoop up. Mm-hmm. This would usually include hundreds of dolphins, which would get tangled up in the net and drown because they need air, even though they live in the ocean. Yeah, they'd get that blowhole. <laughs> Some estimates were that as many as 500,000 dolphins were killed every year. Ugh. Eventually, several countries banned the use of drift nets, and the U.S. banned the sale of any tuna caught using those or similar nets. Mm. And we started slapping a label on the cans that says dolphin safe. Mm. So the tuna industry stopped with the nets and started using this other thing called the fish aggregation device, or FAD. Mm-hmm. So the fads are artificial structures that use vibrations to attract schools of fish, which allow fishermen to catch huge amounts of tuna, and the dolphins are not attracted to them. Okay. The problem is, while the dolphins aren't attracted to them, every other type of fish is. Apparently, for every thousand tons of tuna, more than a hundred thousand random animals are unintentionally fish and killed, including endangered sharks, manta rays, and sea turtles. Is that still happening now? That's happening now. Oh, no. Greenpeace is trying to get rid of fads now, because that's like the next thing to regulate. But the end result of all this dolphin safe stuff is actually way worse than the original nets, because we're now killing more species, more endangered species than the other method. 
So clearly we need something better than both the Nets or these fads. Right. But I mean, I don't know. I, I'm struggling because I feel like with any learning, there's mm-hmm. trial and error, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It just sucks when we do these massive industrial scale experiments. Right. right. And then end up fucking things up worse. Well, it makes sense that you'd be like, well, this is clearly like the dolphins are safe. So yeah. that's a like step one. Yeah. Check that box. But then like the next thing is like, oh, sh- shit. Right, right. But how and, many and, other things are we affecting? Right. And just realize how many like, well, we already know how much we're overfishing the oceans and all of this stuff, too. It's like there's the discussion is never like, geez, maybe we should cool it with how much we're just like right. in the oceans. It's right. like, no, let's just try to. Well, that was something where I was like, what if we caught fewer tuna fish? Mm-hmm. Like if we just did it with the old hook and line yeah. in the rods. Uh-huh. And then it's like, well, would that wind up with so much fewer food that we would wind up with starvation issues? Mm-hmm. Where is the line that know. you draw? Well, it's also when you're talking about like our country or like the industrialized West or whatever, there's mm-hmm. such an abundance of food right. that I think that that's not the case. Correct, but- correct. I-, I think the mistake here with the dolphin safe stuff is not fully testing fads as a good replacement. Right. And to the point about the animal activism too, it's like, Again, they're, they're such emotional things because mm-hmm. especially, you know, if certainly if you have a, an affinity for animals or whatever and you see the, the torture and the pain and whatnot, like I, un, I understand it. I don't, but I don't want to, I don't want to understate how important it is how you approach these topics right. because I, I mean, I take your point in terms of maybe, maybe they'll say, oh, people don't like, but like right. people fucking know that people don't like fur coats. Right. But you they know? didn't, did they know that to this certain extent before like red paint became like kind of a cliche? I think the red paint actually painted... <laughs> It actually painted the the PETA activists and as crazy, and as crazy people. Yeah. You're a racist. You're a sexist. You're a right, monster. Right. It's, it's not the way to make people screaming change their at minds. somebody instead of showing them the truth of what they're and doing. And literally just ruining a thing that they spent probably right. an inordinate amount of money on. They're not thinking like I'm the problem. Right. <laughs> yeah. They're not. That's not going to get you to be like, let me look inward. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Ay ay ay. So I really did quite a dive during this Eastern State Penitentiary thing. Yeah. And one of the guys that escaped ESP during that that famous 1945 escape was a man by the name of Willie the Actor Sutton, a.k.a. Slick Willie. Oh, I've heard of Slick Willie. Yeah. Although maybe I thought of that as like a gold old ghost story from when I was at camp. I've heard of Big Willie style. I've heard of that too. (laughs) Was this guy an actor? Or was he he a bad actor? He was just a fucking bad actor. Although quite a gentleman as I found. Anyway, so at one point he was one of the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives until his final capture in 1952. Mm. This fucking guy. I love it. Like I love old timey criminals. I know that sounds bad, (laughs) but like, you know, not like some of these dicks we have today. Right. No, I'm just kidding. no honor. <laughs> right. Among thieves. So this guy was born in Brooklyn in 1901, and he was a bank robber known for his proclivity for disguises, which is why he's called the actor. Well, he, that's, I gotta say, that is one thing about old timey people. It's like back at a time where you could be a bank robber and you could go in with a big mustache and do this right. stuff. Right. You didn't have like, to be a dick. Right. Like you could just, you're like, you just go and you're like, that's the where, that's even right. what he said when they asked him, they're like, why do you rob banks? He's like, that's where the money is. Right. Like, I'm not trying to hurt anybody. Right. 
Anyway, so he frequently posed as a Western Union messenger and arrived at a bank or a store just as it was opening. And then just be like, I'm I'm, here to load up all the cash. Right. It's like, well, because, you know, you're able to go in. Nobody's questioning you. Mm -hmm. It's right at opening a business. There's not customers. He also dressed as a maintenance man, a policeman, a diplomat, and a window cleaner. Some of his favorite get-ups. So, like I was saying, even though he was a bank robber, he had the reputation of being a gentleman. Even people at his robberies said he was polite. One victim even said witnessing one of Sutton's robberies was like being at the movies, except the usher had a gun. That's so great. I love it. Like, ooh, yeah. thrills and chills. It's a Sutton robbery. Yeah, exactly. We've got this. The real fucking Bodhisattva, just <laughs> yeah. like really super nice. Sorry, a point break reference, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, in 1931, on charges of assault and robbery, Sutton was sentenced to 30 years in Sing Sing, but he broke out the next year. In 1932, by scaling the prison wall on two nine-foot sections of ladder that were joined together. Like like stilts? Or wait, no, that doesn't just make any la- sense. Just, yeah, I just mean, a ladder. Why don't they you... just say a ladder? Two nine-foot sections of ladder that were joined. You're like, you mean a ladder? Oh, he just made it extra long. I oh, see what they're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah that like makes sense. they they he had Even an extended ladder. Because yeah, yeah. they're only it makes sense that if a prison has any ladders, they make them much smaller than the wall. Right, <laughs> right. Know? So he just like I guess put had two time together, to yeah. Fucking put it together. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that tells you you're like, guys, the precedent has been set because y'all are not paying attention to right. your prisoners. Anyway, so after he broke out of Sing Sing, which I also thought was like a real I know that's a famously place. giant prison. You know, that's Sing Sing and Alcatraz, I know, are like the big ones. Now, after that escape, he was apprehended then in 1934 and sentenced to serve 25 to 50 years in Eastern State Penitentiary. Okay. Then, of course, he was one of 12 that escaped but was recaptured the same day. That had been his fifth escape attempt at the prison. Wow. So after that bullshit, they sentenced him to life imprisonment. Mm-hmm. And he was then transferred to Philadelphia County Prison. Then on February 10th, 1947, Sutton and other prisoners dressed as prison guards mm-hmm. carried two ladders across the prison yard to the wall after dark. And when the prison searchlights hit him, Sutton yelled, it's OK. And no one stopped him and he got away. Wait, what? <laughs> so he's in an officer's right. uniform climbing a ladder to get over the wall. Yeah. And he yells to the other guards, we're just doing a thing. Right, because they're like, well, he's dressed like a prison guard. So obviously. Uh, he's but he's scaling the wall. He's scaling the wall. What other prison officers are needing to do that? That's the other thing, though, too, is you're like, man, they don't make criminals like they did back in the day. But it's <laughs> right, like because yeah. they were dum-dums back then. They're like, no one's going to try to scale and get out of here. Am I right? Right, right. <laughs> anyway, so he fucking gets away in 1947. He was then added to the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list in 1950, and because of his love for expensive clothes, his photograph was given to tailors as well as police departments. (laughs) (laughs) Do do his designs live on to this day? So in 1952, someone recognized him on the New York City subway, and they followed him to a local gas station where he purchased a battery for his car, and then they reported it to police. And I found this excerpt from a reprint of the New York Daily News article that had originally been printed on that day, February 19th. 1952 and I love this okay the two cops walked up to Willie and asked are you Willie Sutton but he showed the old boldness that had earned him a reputation as the most audacious big time robber since Gerald Chapman am I Willie (laughs) Sutton he laughed hell no my name's Gordon (laughs) anyway just like reading the whole like shebang of them being like this guy that had you know he was famous by that point did they did they apprehend him or was they like Gordon gets to go he's not Gordon he's Gordon he's He's not Willie Sutton so I think initially they withdrew but then we're just kind of like watching him from the corner Uh but then they like looked away and looked back and he was gone and and basically they ended up like finding him searching his place he had a bunch of guns and like a shit ton of money that he would 
say like, oh, it's from an old job I had before that right. I put aside for, you know. So, My old bank robbing job. Right, right. So then he was booked and his char- the charges were third degree burglary and robbery, grand larceny and assault all in the first degree. But he continued to deny his identity until fingerprints were rushed over from Manhattan police headquarters. And of course he was, he denied anything that happened after his escape from Pennsylvania. From, okay. the, from the Pennsylvania prison that he was transferred to because, you know, they had him on all the other shit, but like anything after that, he was like, I've never done it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Anyway, so then once they brought him the fingerprints, he said, and this is old timey robber voice, uh-huh. well, you've got me. I'm Willie Sutton. I'm 51 and I'm tired of it all. I might as well be dead now. You can kill me for all I care. They're like, great. You, I mean, you're 51. You got away with this shit for a long time. Yeah. So at the time of his arrest, he owed one life sentence plus 105 years. And <laughs> he, he was further sentenced to an additional 30 years to life in New York State Prison following a jury trial in Queens County Court. And he remained behind bars until Christmas Eve 1969. But at that point, he was ill. He had like emphysema and blah, blah, blah. So they released him from Attica State Prison at 68 years old. And ironically, in 1970, he did a TV commercial to promote the New Britain, Connecticut Bank and Trust Company's new photo credit card program. Uh, like, I couldn't steal yeah, from this like, if I tried. Oh, bummer. <laughs> oh, fiddlesticks. That's a great... Whoever thought of that at the ad campaign is like, and, deserves a raise. I mean, and it makes me wonder, probably because there was like really no violence. I mean, of course, there's the threat of like, right, give me right. all your money, but like, it's almost like by that point, sort of like, Willie. Right. I feel like I've seen movies about like bank robbers who are good guys, who like, you know, they don't... They just want the money. They're not looking to hurt anybody. Again, funny, fucking Bodie from Point Break. He's yeah. just he just wants to right. surf, you know. Right. Like he just wants because he gets the mess. thrill. Yeah, yeah. It's the thrill. And they need to they need to support their habit of like not having jobs yeah. and just surfing all the time. <laughs> right. It's like you know you could take that time you're doing robbing banks and yeah, just, get, just get a paycheck. You could just like be a surfing instructor, bro. Yeah, you would absolutely <laughs> be a success. You're in LA. Now, yeah. so Willie Sutton lived until 1980. He died in Spring Hill, Florida, at the age of 79. Before his death, he co-authored I, Willie Sutton, and Where the Money Was. <laughs> but I think what was so fascinating is also like reading the New York Daily News from that time. He'd been living in a rooming house three and a half blocks from Brooklyn Police Headquarters for like two years. <laughs> and, you know, once he was finally interviewed and he said, I'm glad it's over. Like, it just makes me think of like what that lifestyle was. Like, oh, he, said, he said, I never made any contact with any of my former friends. I avoided cops and crowds. He said he didn't even attempt to see his mother even though she only lived a half a mile from him Mm. whiskey was no problem because he doesn't drink he said he'd given up on shooting craps and then he says this quote i made it a point to stay away from the women that's why i stayed out of jail for five years so it's like he stayed away from chicks, booze, friends, mom. But what kind of a life is this? I know. It's yeah. nuts. And like, and Commissioner Gordon. Commissioner Whoa. Oh hey there. Commissioner George Monaghan. Because <laughs> he called himself Gordon. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he referred to Sutton as the Babe Ruth of bank robbers and <laughs> the most great. notorious criminal in the country. And so, you know, Sutton, when he was being interviewed, he was talking about how he found it very amusing that any bank robbery in the entire country, anybody like always assumed associated with him Uh and he's like why I never left the city except for a couple of brief hauls to New Jersey. Right. Like, he was just keeping a low profile the whole time, but again, because he had never been apprehended, people were like, this must be another it's Sutton crime. Every bank robbery must yeah. have been him. Yeah, so he was bouncing around, and like, he bounced from Staten Island, where he was known as Edward Lynch, then to the rooming house in Brooklyn as John Mahoney, and then he obtained an auto license under his alias Charles Gordon. 
And like nobody in the boarding house even knew. Even his landlady at the time called him one of the nicest men I ever knew. <laughs> so it was just, I, I liked the idea of, you know, he, he was kind of one of the last of those old-timey bank robbers who could really swindle people for millions by just, like, right. his wit and charm and Well, shit. actually, I think somebody who this is reminding me of who came a little bit after him was Frank Abagnale, uh-huh. who's the guy that the movie Catch Me If You Can is based mm. on. And totally. his story is totally true, where, like, he just went in and he was like, I'm a pilot, and he became an airline pilot yeah. at, like, 17 years old, and he was just do- defrauding checks and stuff like that. Right. And then eventually came around to the other side where he like ends up helping the FBI or whatever it is to catch criminals like him. That's interesting. He's a fascinating, he wound up on The Tonight Show and stuff like that. He's yeah. like a really interesting guy. Yeah, definitely. I, w- I mean, I would want to look into that. I just, I mean, the people like, that doesn't happen these days. I mean, first right. of all, there aren't just like regular holdups at the bank anymore. Right, like if people right. are swindling, it's like fucking on the internet. I saw like a gif of somebody trying to rob a bank and he goes in and as soon as he does like this metal thing like f- slides down in front of the person oh, yeah. and and he's like trying to get out of the bank but the door is locked right. and he's like slamming himself into the door like how do I get out? Totally. And then this old lady walks in and opens the door and he's like he's like he like steps back into the bank like I'm fucked. I'm fucked. What am I going to do? Yeah. And then the old lady opens the door and he like runs to it and grabs the door and bolts. Right, that's- and she's like what happened and like yeah. looks ahead and like nobody's in the bank because it's all metal i mean yeah think about the yeah the days before any of that or even like mm-hmm. the button underneath the counter that you could right. like hit if something was going on with this the guy, bulletproof they, glass they literally yeah. just fucking walked in and were like hey guys don't freak out this yeah. is gonna be over soon i'm a gentleman well a that's why like we talked about the pinkertons before and yeah. they were like the original armored trucks to drive money from bank to bank right. because like you just pull them over and be like, give me all that money. Right. People are not trustworthy is what I've learned. (laughs) That is the truth. (laughs) Well, that's why we need those prisons. (laughs) Oh, no. So in this movie, they've got a virus that's all up on the planet and it's going to kill all these people. Fucks us up. There's a lot of sterilization that's going on as Bruce Willis goes out into the world. Who was getting sterilized? Do you remember? It was Bruce. It was like, well, because in the future land where Mm -hmm. he gets like sterilized and then put into this weird clear hazmat suit and then he goes up to like find what life is alive. Oh, you're talking about when they throw him in the shower? This is at the very, very beginning of the movie. Like this is while he's in the future and he goes and he looks up and he's like in, is it New York or Philadelphia? or whatever and he looks up and he sees like a lion on the building and stuff of course right so he can't breathe any of the air because it's all toxic to humans or whatever I looked into ways to sterilize things and one thing that I realized in the process was that a lot of these methods don't work for sterilizing a living person okay which makes a lot of sense oh I'm really glad you said because now I know what you mean when you say sterilize I think I thought you meant like so that you cannot have children anymore. Oh, that makes more sense. And now I know what you're saying. No, I mean literally no germs. Uh, yeah, because they threw them in that shower, yeah. like the industrial shower. Right, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, exactly. Gotcha. I was like, they sterilized him? I don't remember that. I forgot that that word could be used that way. So, well, because when it's a surgical instrument that you're sterilizing, you can burn that fucker. What yeah. a person needs to be decontaminated will literally not survive most of these methods. Totally, yeah, 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 okay. So the method of choice for sterilization in most labs is called autoclaving, which mm-hmm. I'd heard of, but I never knew what it was. It's also known as a wet heat. Basically, it uses pressurized steam to heat the material that needs to be sterilized, and apparently steam holds heat differently than water at the same temperature. 
So it's seven times more effective at heating something quickly than water at the same temperature would be. Interesting. Okay, all right. Essentially, after some time in a steam bath, no microbes can survive. Mm -hmm. Another method uses dry heat, which is known as flaming or baking. Basically, it's a non-steam oven where it needs to be much hotter for longer to be effective, Mm -hmm. but sometimes you don't have the right technology or whatever it is. I just came from the gym where I spent some time in the steam room. I generally don't like to go into the sauna because that's dry heat. Right. I have to sit in there longer than I would like. There you go. This is exactly that. Yeah. Another method is using ethanol or other disinfectants, which is great at killing microbial cells, but has no effect on spores. Okay. Okay. So then there's radiation. Uh UV, X-rays, and gamma rays seriously damage DNA, and so they're great for sterilization. Gotcha. UV is the safest, but it's also the least effective, while X-rays and gamma rays penetrate deeply, and that makes them more effective, but also much more dangerous. Uh However, those are perfect for sterilizing a ton of plastic medical stuff, like during the manufacturing. Right, So like when you're in the factory, and you've just got like a ton of this stuff, and it's like, let's mass sterilize it, Mm -hmm. radiation is like a great way to go. Gotcha. The thing about sterilizing a human being is that you can never really fully do it. Mm -hmm. So we do these things to the best of our ability, like scrubbing with soap, exfoliating the excess skin, and effectively getting as many germs off of you as possible. Then you step into a hazmat suit of some kind, some kind of sealed environment, Mm -hmm. which has been sterilized using those other methods that like human beings can't handle. Gotcha. Okay. And then you step into a clean room or something like that. Mm-hmm. That way, if there's a rip in your suit, the fact that you've minimized the microbes on your body means that the chances of contamination are as low as possible. Gotcha. It's kind of funny to me, though, that the same technology that is used to keep us from infecting spacecraft in a clean room is the exact same thing that would be used to keep us from being infected by a dangerous virus that we might handle. Right. I was just thinking, I was like, chemo and shit. I mean, and how to, how to utilize that power because like there's all of these... You know, downsides to obviously going through radiation therapy. Right, right. Your hair, you're sick, and all of it. It's like, how do you kill the bad cells while keeping the good ones? Right, and you're not gonna you're not gonna use radiation on a human being to sterilize their skin, Mm -hmm. but also you don't want to use disinfectants, and you're certainly not gonna heat them with steam to the point where they're gonna die. Even dial is a little harsh on the skin. (laughs) That's right. You know, I mean, we gotta (laughs) sterilize skin radiation, please. (laughs) Science. I was trying to find topics, and I, I was reading on IMDb that the title and logo design that we even saw in the trailer with the monkeys, and they're all like, it's There's in a There's 12 of them around, 12, yeah, 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 and the it's number act- 12 is there. Precisely. It's actually inspired by a puzzle that was created in 1898 called Get Off the Earth. This was created by Sam Lloyd. This is based on Barrel of Monkeys? It is not, but I wonder if Barrel of Monkeys is an iteration of Get Off the Earth. Okay. So basically, I was just like, what the fuck is the Get Off the Earth puzzle? I mean, look into that. And it was apparently one of the most popular puzzles ever created. Over 10 million copies were produced. Certainly, like in the span of time, I'm not saying like it's more popular than Resident Evil. The Rubik's Cube. (laughs) Yeah, Resident Evil. That puzzle. That puzzle. (laughs) It's a real puzzle. How do you kill the zombies? It's a real puzzle. (laughs) Now, okay, so this particular puzzle shows, and I'll have links to this and video and whatever, because the puzzle shows a number of Chinese warriors around the rim of a circular piece of cardboard that's fastened at the center to a larger piece of cardboard so it can be turned. And part of each warrior is inside the circle 
circle and part is outside, and when the disc is rotated from its original position to its second position, one warrior disappears. Very quickly, I'm going to show Jeff a picture of this so that it's not just me <laughs> talking. Right, right. I'm already picturing that old game, Lights Out. Where it's like you, for some reason, where I don't know why, I'm, maybe I'm way off base, but where you like click the light and then the lights around it turn on and then you got to click the other lights and you got to turn all the lights off. I don't think I ever played that. But anyway, so you just twist it until somebody's got, I don't know. Things that, that you know, kept us busy back in the day is well, fucking see, unreal. Yeah, this is like one of those slide puzzles, I guess. Exactly. Where you, you, there's like the one missing square and you got to move all the squares around to kind of get, but it's like a circular version of it. Right, that's exactly right. If you've ever played as Nathan Drake, then you know that this is common and uncharted right <laughs> speaking directly to you guys yeah. yeah so anyway this was invented by this guy sam lloyd and i just wanted to look into him like what's this guy's deal it'll be brief guys just keep with me tell me about sam lloyd yeah so he was born in 1841 in philadelphia Jack, this, whole, big, this whole episode big surrounds philly it. show yeah so he began inventing big philly style uh, you're welcome. All right. <laughs> so Sam Lloyd began inventing chess problems when he was 14 years old, and three years later, he rec- he was recognized as the foremost American chess composer. Composer. So, yeah. He was like, he composed chess. Exactly. I'm like, is this a thing? They kept re- referring to it as chess compositions, and I'm like, ay, ay, Well, I guess because wow. there are these, like, opening moves or, like, there's certain, like, standardized chess play styles. Right, right, exactly. Well, and from 1860, he was problem editor of the magazine Chess Monthly, which was edited by leading chess master Paul Morphy. So like, it's a world. Then he eventually moved on to to creating puzzles, but he studied engineering. He took a license as a steam and mechanical engineer, but basically he was just like a hustler until he could live exclusively from his, his chess compositions and puzzles. So it's like, you know, Lucrative respect, business, I guess. Live the dream, do your thing, yeah. man. And he contributed to American Chess Nuts. Which is, I guess, a magazine about Okay, that. okay. And in 1878, he published his own book of problems called Chess Tr- Strategy. So then, but this is an interesting fact. He later moved on to puzzles and games, and he invented trick donkeys, which I'm not familiar with, but I do Let's know... pin the tail on the... I know it. I is do, that? Trick, maybe it... No. making that okay. up. <laughs> but I do know Pigs and Clover. We've talked about Pigs and Clover before. Oh, yeah. And he also invented Parcheesi, which I have never played, but old people talk about, and that's like an old people thing, right? I have a... Parcheesi board How and do I don't think it? I've what ever played it, it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but I have I think one probably because of I'm like I'll stick with Yahtzee right. y'all gonna have Parcheesi <laughs> it's fine so basically yeah the Lloyd puzzles are remarkable for their disguised use of simple algebraic formulas so if That's anybody cool. wants to check up on Lloyd puzzles do it yeah you're welcome did you have any favorite lines I had a couple of lines that yeah. I wrote down okay so there are some delightful shithead 90s beanie cap wearing beret wearing oh, trash yeah. I didn't write movie. any of those down <laughs> Lay there was on one me. that I wrote down and remember when he, this kid's just like so that's when he let a hundred snakes loose in the senate yeah <laughs> I, I actually wound up trying to look up like has there ever been animals in the senate and like I just couldn't figure out a way to use google to right. my advantage I, I honestly I did not write down the context as I generally <laughs> do not but I was it was the way he said it and it was so like delightfully 1995 right dickhead it was just like mm. so that's when he let a hundred snakes right. loose in the senate I also realized when he said a hundred I was like well 
there are a hundred senators, and boy, well, are, what are they trying to say? Right, right, exactly. Oh, they're, they're all snakes. The one that I wrote down is directly related to the Cassandra complex that yeah. I talked about before, which is just, she describes the agony of foreknowledge combined with the impetus to do anything about it. Oh, yeah, and it's I like, actually really did like that. Yeah, and, and that would be horrifying. Yeah, yeah. And then in terms of, you know, things that this made me want to look into in the future, like I said, kind of underground maps and tunnels and maybe other, yeah. we've talked about some other interesting escape attempts but there's got to be more yeah and i want to look into like more early prisons and certain things about prisoners like early early bank robbers and definitely some more like yeah a lot of man you know with my tommy gun (laughs) right i did see when james is escaping from the asylum he runs past a security guard who's reading a tabloid with bat boy on the cover oh yeah so there was an a moment when i was like do i need to look in a bat because to be honest i thought it was something that went much farther back into history than it did but it was just like in the 90s in fucking weekly world news and so i guess i had thought that it was more of this like pulp phenomenon than it was i thought maybe it was from before the 90s well anyway (laughs) yeah please rate and review us on itunes you can find us at oh that's a thing.com and at oh that's a thing on facebook and twitter i'm at it's a joy amia on instagram and twitter and i'm at jeffrey ekman and you can find us here next week doing the movie howard the duck oh howard oh howard howard the duck that was really a fascinating experience it was that fascinating movie fully lived up to all of the hype of in the every worst. way that it yeah. could be hyped which is like it's insane it's, it's like ins- one of the craziest movies you've ever seen he's trapped in a world in never made he, he never made this world he's, he's a, anyway we'll we talk about it a lot there's, next week there's a lot to rant about. it's gonna be a really fun episode so See tune in <laughs> bye, bye.